All right, have a seat. Good morning. Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. A lot of you are back from spring break. Hope you had a good trip away. And I know others are still coming in. God has been good to us in many ways. I hope that's the story of your life and increasingly so as we grow together. Take a moment and fill out a connection card if you would today and let us know you're here in case nobody sees you. And uh, we really want you in a life group. If you're not in a life group yet, mark that you need help with that. We want to get you connected with other people, and that's when you get more in the heartbeat of things. And hope you'll do that. Also, uh, two weeks today, of course, is Resurrection Sunday, and we have six services that day, three in here and three in the sanctuary. And if any of you are willing, you know, 8 o'clock is the least attended, uh, especially in the fellowship center. So if any of you are willing to come at 8, it really helps the parking situation, and it helps with those newer people that will come later in the morning. So if some of you would do that as a ministry and a service on Resurrection Day, that would really, really be helpful to us. Also, you know, that is the day our, uh, our other campus reunion is relaunching that day. They've been beefing up for that day. You've probably seen the blue yard sign start up appearing at different places. And uh, there's some more available in the hub. If you're willing to pick one up and put it in your yard, that helps get the word out about that campus. And we trust that they'll have a, a great uh, relaunch day that day also. Be inviting people to come with you. Okay? The, last, the last study I showed uh, revealed that 82% of people said they would attend a church if somebody invited them. 82%. It's still the most effective way. Just invite people to come with you. If you get some objections, don't take it personally. Just go to somebody else. Okay. Let's pray. Our Father, it is so good to speak to one who is our grand redeemer and our dearest friend. And we are so thankful that through all of life's journeys, all its passageways, as dark as they may be, there is, there is light with you. And I pray, Father, you'll take our darkest moments and you'll always use them somehow, ultimately, for your own glory. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring deeply for us. Thank you for never giving up on us. And I pray that as we grow ourselves, that we will move throughout this world with, with sharper eyes and better understanding hearts and the ability to be the, the hands and the feet, the eyes, the mouth, the feet of Jesus always. We thank you for this time of worship. I pray we use it well for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're continuing to think about uh, giving up, and we want to give up this, this uh, grip of the fear of death in our lives. Woody Allen once said, I don't, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. <laughs> well, that ain't going to happen. Unless Jesus comes back while we're still alive, which may happen in our lifetime. We don't know. He, is, he has promised he's going to return to us, and he will. Uh, th this text that we're coming to in John 11 is uh, the seventh of seven signs that John records to give testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He says there are a lot of things that could be written elsewhere in, in, his, in his book. He says there's a lot of things that could be written. He says if everything could be written down, the whole world couldn't, wouldn't be enough room to shelve all the books that could be written about Jesus. And so of all that John witnessed, he chose these seven things. This seventh one is perhaps uh, the most well-known of the seven. And John says, I'm writing these things so that you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And that as a result of believing in him, you may have life that is really life. That, that's the whole purpose for John telling, this, telling us. So John chapter 11, we'll start with verse uh, 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Uh, Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were good friends of Jesus. When word came to Jesus, of course, that Lazarus was sick, uh, this message was, the one you love is sick. Later, when he goes to the tomb, they say of him, see how he loved him. There was a great relationship in this fam- between this family and Jesus. So Jesus is away when he gets word that Lazarus is sick and he's dead by the time Jesus arrives. This text is a vital one for, one, for us. It's, it's, it's such a grand one. It challenges us to leave ourselves and even this fear of death, the grip that death has on us with Jesus the only one who can conquer death, and not only death itself as we think of death, but all the fingers that death has. Death is real, but there are two things that are necessary if you want to live outside the grip of the fear of death. First of all, you have to acknowledge the person of Jesus. Acknowledge the person of Jesus. This is a striking scene. Martha and Mary obviously have been talking and sharing their feelings because Martha greets Jesus first and says, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Jesus responds to her in an appropriate way. Mary comes out, and Mary says the same thing. In the first case, when Martha speaks, Jesus a bit rebukes her, saying, I'm the the resurrection of the life, as if to say, it's never too late. Don't, Don't you know, Martha? Don't you know? Don't you understand who I am? When Mary comes out and says it, that conversation really takes Jesus to the tomb. Take me to the tomb where Lazarus is. And then he weeps with Mary. Two different responses, two different aspects of the same person. One person, different aspects of the person that he is. To Mary, 
Jesus doesn't say, I have access to power. He says, I am power. I am the power that grants life. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is claiming by that statement that he is deity, that he is God himself. Now with Mary, when he weeps with her, he, he's emphasizing his humanity. And both are essential in our walk with Christ. Being God, he can tackle anything that we're going through, our greatest enemy. Being human, he's able to identify with our grief. If he's only deity, then we could charge God with not really understanding our life dilemmas. If he's only human, well, there's nothing he can do to empower us to even deal with life's dilemmas. It's tough to get our head around this, really. Of all the things in the Bible, to get our heads around Jesus, that he's all God and all man in one person, it's hard. That's why we pay attention to the testimony of the people who saw him and wrote down the things that he did, preserved for us, that we could believe their testimony. They believed so fervently that they knew they had seen him alive. That's why they laid down their lives. That's why they were martyred for the faith because they knew Jesus was alive. He was who he claimed to be. Now, this is usually a Christmas text, Isaiah 9, but I've included it here, where it says, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are more descriptions than titles. Mary needed to know him and meet him as Everlasting Father and Mighty God, as deity, Mary needed him as wonderful counselor and prince of peace. You don't have to walk with Jesus too long, too far, before you experience him in all four ways. As our, as our mighty God, he is able to see us through life's most difficult situations we'll ever go through. As the everlasting father, I'm reminded that he is and I'm not. All I have to look at is my photo albums at home and know that. Um, he's, he's my wonderful counselor granting wisdom that I need for life so much. He's the prince of peace that calms the storm. And we know him in different ways at different times, at different seasons. Over the last couple of years, Diana and I have had to know him as wonderful counselor. We've had to know him as Justin has in his family as being you know, the prince of peace in the midst of this kind of storm. And certainly this week we have claimed that as well. I think back at me in all these areas. I mean, and and no one of these areas can I can relate. The one that pops out to me, I don't know what pops out to you. For me, it's wonderful counselor. Because as a preacher, I am called to counsel people. And I'm not a very good counselor often. And certainly early on in ministry, when you're a punk kid out of college, what really I know about giving counsel. I mean, somebody sit in my office and said what they were doing, how they felt, and I wanted to say, okay, well, stop doing that. Let's pray. That was my counsel. You know, and, and this is no joke. I'd be in the hallway or in the foyer, and people would start talking to me about their problems. And I had this stupid tape recording that went on in my brain. And it was saying, while they were talking, I'm thinking, they're telling your story, and they're expecting you to have an answer for their problem. What are you going to say to them when they're done? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? They're almost done. They're almost done with their story. What are you going to say? You have to say to you. You don't even have any Bible verse to give them, do you? What are you going to say? You don't look like a real stupid person at the end of this problem. And I'd say that talking to myself all the time. I have stopped doing that which is good. And I am thankful that in the midst of counseling sessions, when I don't know what to say, I do have the wisdom of God in my hands. I can point them to to someone who does have the wisdom 
And I'm thankful for professional counselors who are really able to, to unlock mysteries of how we think and how we operate and behave. But ultimately, he is the wonderful counselor. He's the one that grants peace. But, but, but we, get, we, get to the, we, we get to the point where we see this one, we meet this one who is infinitely kind and loving and good and wise, both our mighty God when we're powerless and, and our everlasting Father when we, when we feel and know we've been orphaned by sin, our wonderful counselor when we need wisdom, our Prince of Peace when life is in turmoil. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. John Jonathan Edwards is a preacher of generations ago, and he wrote a sermon once about the excellency of Jesus Christ, where he presents him as both the lion and the lamb, the God who is, who is so powerful and the God who is so humble at the same time. And we meet him in the pages of Scripture, page after page, in the depths of our hearts as well when we call on him. You know, on August 21st, there's a full eclipse of the sun that day. You've read about that, and you've seen the, 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 the course of it over the United States from the northeast to the southwest. I think the, the, the nearest for us to experience the fullness of the eclipse is Hodgensville, Kentucky, as I understand and have looked at it. You can go to Amazon, and you can order your special glasses to look at the full eclipse of the sun because they tell us you dare not do it directly because of the, of the way the sun's rays are, you can have eye damage as a result. God was so good to us that he sent Jesus because we could not look on the face of God and stand in his glory. And Jesus came as God. So when we saw Jesus, when we meet Jesus in the pages of scripture in our lives, we see the face of God. You want to know God better? You get closer to Jesus all the time. We have to grasp him. We want to acknowledge him, the fullness of this person of Jesus, to stay away from the grip of the fear of death. And second of all, by embracing the work of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Jesus goes to the tomb, and when he does, we see why he came. Two reasons. He came, first of all, to fight for us. To fight for us. Verse 33 says that when he went to the tomb... He was moved. Now, some translations say troubled. And that Greek word there means that he bellowed like an animal. He roared. There was this, it's a deep guttural sound. Have you, or you've been with somebody before that, where you've heard that sound? I have. When people reach such a level of grief that there is this, this, I can't even describe it. It is guttural. It's from the depths of their being, the kind of grief they have within and their mourning. It, it's terrible. That's how Jesus, it, it denotes a kind of anger. Jesus was angry at Lazarus' tomb. He wasn't angry at Lazarus' family for lacking faith that he could raise their brother from the dead. He wasn't angry at God himself for allowing such a thing to happen to this family. I don't think he was angry at man for being responsible in their rebellion against God, their creator, of bringing all the pain and suffering there is into the world. He was angry at death. He was angry at death, this great enemy of ours that wants to deplete us of life. Rob us of life with all its different facets. And I'm not talking just about death that you face in a funeral home or a cemetery. 
There's all kinds of death that we experience in life. Jesus didn't go to that tomb with a stiff upper lip, even though he knew what he was about to do. He didn't go stoically, nor did he go naively say, well, let's all just praise the Lord or act like this is a normal, natural thing. There's nothing more unnatural to this world than death because it's not the world that God created and wanted for us. No, he was angry at death because of what it would do to us. He came to fight for us, and he came to die for us. That's the only way he could do what he was about to do. And this is the turning point in John's biography of Jesus. The first 11 chapters cover about 30 individual separate days of Jesus' 33 years of life. 30 days. They're like getting a postcard from him. That's it. From chapter 12 on, it's the final days of his life and existence, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension. That's it. This is the turning point. At the end of this chapter, he's going to see, say, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Death had to be eradicated. And the only way that Jesus could get Lazarus out of that tomb is by putting himself in it. That's what he knew he was ultimately going to do. And the only way to get you and me out of our graves and out of the different kinds of death experiences in life that we go through is by putting himself in our place. They said of him that day, see how he loved him. And every time, in just a few minutes, we're going to be holding a little bit of juice and bread. And every time we're holding and taking these emblems, we're saying, see how he's loved us to this degree. Four implications out of this today. When we meet Jesus in his fullness and grasp his work, first of all, we're going to eliminate blame. Isn't that the first thing we want to do? We want to blame God for not answering prayers the way we want him to. We want to blame God. We all want to say, if you had been here, you know, I'd like to say in the flesh, God, if you'd been there, my son wouldn't become an opiate addict. Or if you had been here, you'd let that child live. That's what we tend to say, isn't it? If you'd have been here, Lord... Why are you letting this happen? But how can we dare blame God for our suffering when he has gone the nth degree and suffered worse suffering than I could ever think to imagine to suffer so that I might live forever and have life here before he comes back? You see, when I, when I grasp what he did for me, when you do that, I, I can't blame him. I want to do it. It's the last thing I should be doing. Suffering is so hard to understand. But Christianity is the only faith that has God coming down to involve himself in our human suffering. He's the only, he's the only God that does that. Of all the gods that are worshipped. Because he's the only true living God. Second, we'll accept suffering. Jesus cannot love and raise Lazarus without suffering himself. And that's the nature of love, right? I mean, really, face it. When you were going to have a kid, were you thinking of dirty diapers? Were you thinking of potty training? Were you thinking of them driving the car and wrecking it? Were you thinking of those monstrous two, age two-year-old kids? Or those monstrous three-year-olds, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen? <laughs> no. Why, why, why did we have a kid? That we were that stupid? No, because that's what love does, right? 
You want to have a child because you want to have an object of your love. And you, you look forward, you anticipate that child loving you back. That's why God made us, friends. That's why he made us. It's the nature of God to create. And to create, to create in a way that there is free will and the ones he creates to love him back. Why in the world would God create this world when it's going to be such a mess? Because that's what love does anyway. You can't have a child without suffering. You can't be married without going through some suffering if that marriage is going to be a good marriage. You can't have a good friendship without some level of suffering. And being a Christian, isn't, that's, what, that's what our life is about. Being a Christian is about dying to self that others may live. Third, we will abolish commitment limits. Now we're here and we'll say... Uh, we live for Jesus. Yeah, right. I love you, Jesus. I'm sold out. But how dare you ask me for 10% of my income? I love you, Jesus. But do you think I have time to serve with all I got on my plate at work? Jesus, I love you. But I know we shouldn't be living together, but we're going to anyway. God, I love you, Jesus. But you really want me to be in church every week? I mean, don't we all have them? I'm not pointing your finger at my finger at you. I'm talking about me, not in those particular specific ways, but I can name you all kinds of ways in my life where I say he's Lord, and I know he's not. He's always exposing me in his word and revealing. Why? You got to be kidding. You're preaching to these people. What right do you have? That's how I feel many times. I say he's Lord, but I know I have far to grow. Until he is absolutely Lord over my life. And the more I grasp who he is and what he's done, the less limits I'm going to have on what I'm willing to do for him in his name. And he will abandon, and we will abandon fear. We will abandon fear. You know, the fear of death plays itself out in a number of ways. When Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb... You know, he said, uh, roll the stone away. I am so thankful that over the past couple of years, let me back up just a minute, because I think life, life offers many ways that we experience death long before we get to the funeral home. I mean, I've seen in addiction a little death happen. I've seen spouses, because their mate walked out, go through a kind of death, and they wonder, can I be alive again? I've seen parents grieve over a child who becomes estranged from them, and they think, how can I have joy in my life when my child won't speak to me? You know, I, I, uh, you know when, 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 when a friend betrays you, there's a little bit of you that dies inside. And I'm so thankful that, you know, God puts us in a community to help each other roll the stones away. I'm so thankful the people that came around my son's life and rolled the stone away when he couldn't. Or people that came around you when you had nothing left and to help you roll the stone away so you could come out of your deadness. 
On resurrection morning, there was such a massive stone that God intervened himself, and he sent an angel to do it. And sometimes that's the only thing that can happen. God's people, God working through his people is one way, but sometimes God intervenes himself in a way without anybody else to get us out of the grave. And ultimately, that's our story, isn't it? That's our story. How thankful we are for a God like this who doesn't want to stay in the grave. He wants us to get rid of the grave clothes and be free. So let's abandon fear. There's a love that is infinitely greater when we are lost in him because he is the resurrection and the life. George Herbert is a great poet, and he wrote a poem about a conversation between death and the Christian, and this is what he says. The Christian says, Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? And death responds, Alas, poor mortal, void of story, go spell and read how I have killed thy king. The Christian says, Poor death, and who was hurt thereby? Thy curse, being laid on him, makes thee accursed. And death said, Let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. And the Christian says, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou, so much worse, that thou shalt be no more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge your greatness today, your mercy, your goodness. And I pray for anybody in this assembly, Father, who has not known you as the resurrection and the life, that this day will mean one day closer to welcoming you as Lord of all. I pray for all those, Father, who are hurting, who are in a dark place, suffering, a part that has died within. I pray that you will bring full life to them, regardless of their circumstances. You are Lord. There is none other. In Jesus' name, amen.